0: Okay, that's one minute past the hour. We'll get started as usual. Uh, The only announcement I have is that next week will be the final Bible study before Christmas and New Year's. So we'll go as normal next week, December 17th, 8 p.m. Eastern time. The Saturday after that is Christmas Eve, so we'll be off. The Saturday after that is New Year's Eve, so we'll be off. And the Bible study will return Saturday, January 7th as usual, 8 p.m. Eastern time. So uh, get ready for, uh, well, next week will be the final for before the end of the year, and then we'll we'll take a break, and we'll come back in the new year. So appreciate your patience, as always. And uh, that's all I have. So uh, Robert has another lesson for us.
1: All right. As usual, let's start with this scripture reading.
2: I have told you all these things so that you will not fall away. They will put you out of the synagogue, yet a time is coming when the one who kills you will think he is offering service to God. They will do these things because they have not known the Father or me. But I have told you these things so that when their time comes, you will remember that I told you about them. I did not tell you about these things from the beginning because I was with you. But now I am going to the one who sent me, and not one of you is asking me, where are you going? Instead, your hearts are filled with sadness because I have said these things to you. But I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I am going away. For if I do not go away, the Advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will prove the world wrong concerning sin and righteousness and judgment, concerning sin, because they do not believe in me, concerning righteousness, because I am going to the Father and you will see me no longer, and concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world has been condemned. I have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. But when He, the Spirit of truth, comes, He will guide you into all truth. For He will not speak on His own authority, but will speak whatever He hears, and will tell you what is to come. He will glorify Me, because He will receive from Me what is Mine, and will tell it to you. Everything that the Father has is Mine. That is why I said the Spirit will receive from Me what is Mine, and will tell it to you. In a little while you will see me no longer, again after a little while you will see me. Then some of his disciples said to one another, What is the meaning of what he is saying, in a little while you will not see me, again after a little while you will see me, and because I am going to the Father? So they kept on repeating, What is the meaning of what he says, in a little while? We do not understand what he is talking about. Jesus could see that they wanted to ask him about these things. So he said to them, Are you asking each other about this, that I said, In a little while you will not see me again, after a little while you will see me? I tell you the solemn truth. You will weep and wail, but the world will rejoice. You will be sad, but your sadness will turn into joy. When a woman gives birth, she has distress because her time has come, but when her child is born, she no longer remembers the suffering. Because of her joy, that a human being has been born into the world. So also, you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy away from you. At that time, you will ask me nothing. I tell you the solemn truth whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give you. Until now, you have not asked for anything in my name. Ask, and you will receive it, so that your joy will be complete. I have told you these things in obscure figures of speech. A time is coming when I will no longer speak to you in obscure figures, but will tell you plainly about the Father. At that time you will ask in my name, and I do not say that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father Himself loves you, because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and entered into the world, but I in turn am leaving the world and going back to the Father. His disciples said, Look, now you are speaking plainly and not in obscure figures of speech. Now we know that you know everything and do not need anyone to ask you anything. Because of this, we believe that you have come from God. Jesus replied, Do you now believe? Look, a time is coming and has come when you will be scattered, each one to his own home, and I will be left alone. Yet I am not alone because the Father is with me. I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In the world, you have trouble and suffering. But take courage. I have conquered the world." The Gospel of John, chapter 16.
1: All right, that was the scripture reading for today. Um, Before I get started, I have a bit of an apology. To everybody participating. Uh, this week for me was really, really crazy. Uh, and I'm not just saying, oh, I was a little more busy than usual or something, um, mm-hmm. but some major things going on in my life. And so I didn't quite finish the blog. I did 90% of it. I think we will still have a great time tonight. Uh, but to the extent that I didn't finish going through this chapter, I apologize. Okay. But with that out of the way, um, let's let's get started. Well, the chapter begins very much as a continuation of the last chapter, chapter 15. And just to set the stage, let's remember some of the things that were being discussed at the end of chapter 15. We have things like, just like the world hated me, it will hate you. Jesus speaking, of course. The world loves its own, but you are not of the world. The one who hates Jesus hates the Father as well. Jesus' testimony and deeds testify against those who persecute Jesus. The advocate will come and also testify about Jesus. Okay. So we have this idea of testimony and testifying and so forth between these two groups. Uh, it's um, it's it's clearly a forensic context. When I say forensic, I mean like a legal context. Uh, think of a trial. Okay, and uh, chapter fifteen kind of sets the stage, saying to the disciples, "Hey, the world is going to hate you." And then chapter 16 picks up by really explaining the practical form that the hatred is going to take, right? The chapter begins by telling the disciples, hey, you will be put out of the synagogues. Now, I want to spend a little bit of time on this because I don't know that we readily grasp the gravity of what is being said to to understand this. the the first thing that we ought to understand is what a synagogue is right we think of synagogues uh just like going to church and to a great extent nowadays that is true a synagogue is like a jewish church sure um but at the time it really was uh the place where the community would meet and organize um it would work as a school uh there would be communal meals served there. It would serve as a hostel for somebody who would be traveling, for example. It would serve as the courthouse. It would uh, serve as the place where you might distribute charity. So, if, you know, the, the poor might go to the synagogue to receive some food or something of the sort. It's where the political meetings would be had. Um, some worship. What happened would happen there? It is actually unclear how much worship was going on in synagogues in the first century, because really worship ought to be happening in the temple. But apparently, there was at least some worship going on in the synagogues Um, and also some communal prayers. Well, why do I point that out? Because now imagine if you are being excommunicated from the synagogue, you really are being excommunicated from, uh, you know, your Uh, Political representation, right? You no longer get to engage in politics. Uh, If your children are affected by this, they no longer get to go to school. You no longer get to discuss and learn the Torah with the other adult men. Um, You no longer get to share meals with your community. It really, it is what we would call exile. Okay, you're being exiled from the community, even if you're allowed to still live there. Um, In fact excommunication was so serious that the, the rest of the Jews would not be allowed to even come close to you if you were exiled. They, they would not be allowed to get within six feet of you. So you have been completely exiled from the community. Sometimes excommunication would extend to your family and sometimes it would not. Okay, Of course, the, the, you would have to do something truly egregious for the punishment to apply to you and your family, uh, but that could be the case. And then this excommunication could extend for just a few days or an entire lifetime, right? And anything in between. Um, What I think, uh, uh, you know, generally I don't um, insert, you know, kind of personal stories when, when I'm teaching this stuff, but I'll just share this very briefly. I met somebody once when I was in college, a lady that she was from an island off the coast of Africa. This island was almost entirely Muslim. The, pop, the Christian population on the island was five. And I don't mean 5%, I mean five people. Uh, <laughs> and that's when I really understood this concept when she explained to me, look, when I became a Christian, I was excommunicated. They might use a different word, but it's the same idea. And she's like, what What you don't understand is that over there, let's say that you have medical bills to pay. There's no medical insurance. Your family it's your health insurance they would help you pay for the medical expenses um or let's say that you want to buy a house you normally don't go to the bank you go to your family your family lets you borrow the money so whenever you're kicked out of your family you no longer you can no longer get loans you can no longer get you know health care it is just devastating it's almost a death sentence okay at at the time in the first century you I mean uh, among Jews, it would be a similar situation. Okay. So this is the kind of thing that Jesus is telling them. It, it is this level of persecution and hardship that they're being warned of. Um, And then there's this like additional uh, warning uh, where Jesus says, the one who kills you will think that he's offering service to God. Now, You might be saying, this does not sound historically accurate, right? Because the Romans did not give any organization um, the right to kill, the right to, uh, uh, you know, give capital punishment, uh, what's called the right of the sword or eos gladi, and that is true, but um, there's really two things going on. One, sure, a synagogue did not technically have the right to execute someone. But an impromptu lynching can always happen. It, it did happen at the time. So it's not like they always follow the rules. Um, and also the Roman system didn't really have prosecutors per se, like people who were full-time prosecutors. It worked with the system of accusers, of delatoris, which we have mentioned before. So uh, sure, the synagogue couldn't uh, you know, issue a capital punishment on the person being uh Excommunicated, but what they could do was go to the Roman authorities and accuse the person. And then they become effectively a prosecutor that will get this person killed. The other thing that went on is that to some extent, the Romans showed some difference to the Jewish religion. I'm saying some, not full difference by any means, but uh, the Romans understood that the, the Jewish people were monotheistic. Well, once you get a Christian out of that community, kind of lose that difference. And because that Christian refuses to worship the Caesar, he will be killed. And that happened many times. We have many historical records of Christians being killed for their refusal to worship Caesar. Okay. So again, that that kind of sets the stage of, you know, how terrible the situation is that is being discussed in chapter 16. The other thing that we should not miss is the irony going on. And this really goes back to chapter 15 and chapter 16, um, that sure, we have this forensic setting again, this like trial language where there's witnesses and testimony and accusations back and forth. But notice that the image here is that the world is accusing Christians, right? And, uh, at the same time that the world in this court is concluding the christians are guilty and they must be punished and killed at, in um at the divine level it, the opposite is going on right the the world is being condemned um and so there's like this this uh kind of weird irony where the world thinks they're winning by condemning by condemning the followers of jesus but at a divine level it's the exact opposite that is going on Okay. Um, and that's, well, we see that there throughout. Well, the next uh, kind of uh, big idea that I want to highlight, that I want to discuss, is this idea, and this is going to sound funny, I'll explain myself, but that it's better that Jesus uh, be gone. You know, it's better that Jesus leaves. Um, and you may be thinking, Robert, that doesn't sound right. Well, um, that is what the text says, right? It is better for you that I go away why why is that the case now um again let, let's kind of set the, the the stage here by this point in the text jesus has told the disciples a number of things most of them kind of scary he has said um, he's going away the disciples cannot follow him uh, the disciples will be persecuted for their faith and worst of all the disciples won't even remain loyal to jesus through the through this time of hardship. Okay, so it's, it's not a very pretty picture. And then on top of that, Jesus kind of has the nerve, so to speak, to say, yeah, but it's actually better that I go away. Why? Because if Jesus goes away, then the paraclete will come, the Holy Spirit. Um, so notice that Jesus going away, which of course is referring to the, resurre- I mean, to the crucifixion, resurrection, and then glorification of Jesus, right? When he goes to heaven to be with the Father, that will allow for the Holy Spirit to come. And so effectively we're saying Jesus going away is a required step in the plan of salvation. And this plan of salvation is progressing. It's moving forward. And this is a decisive step in this plan of salvation. Um, This is something that, you know, I don't know. I think about regularly how there is a plan of salvation. It, um, it has certain steps. I don't want to say it requires certain steps because God could have done it differently, I suppose. Uh, but there is a plan that we have to work through. Uh, I don't know. I find that sometimes that's like the biggest issue that people have with this, right? It's like, well, why didn't God just like snap his fingers and do this, that, and the other? And, and it's like, look, I mean, I, perhaps I would have some responses to that. But one of the things is, look, there's a plan. There's a plan and, and it works a certain way. Okay. Well, so Jesus will go away and the advocate will come. Now, what will happen when the paraclete comes? In chapter 16, unlike chapter 15 and 14, really, to some extent, the role of the paraclete is described differently. In chapters 14 and 15, the advocate, right, that's what the translation that I'm using says, the advocate is mostly defending uh, believers, advocating for them in this kind of cosmic trial that is going on. And um, also in a sense, really defending Jesus in the sense of proving that Jesus is who he says he is, that his words are true. So the advocate is playing defense. Well, in chapter 16, now the advocate is playing offense. right? He is the prosecutor of the world. And um, I'm using the word prosecutor, but let me, I suppose, kind of discuss that choice of language before I move on real quick. The translation that I am using says he will, quote, prove the world wrong, okay? And that is the word, um, oh my goodness, I lost it, elengse, okay? It's the word elengse. Now, that word is difficult to translate now, we've we've been down this road before. Greek and English are not exactly equivalent languages. I mean, not two languages are. So sometimes when you translate, you you have to pick what gets closest to uh, the term in the original language. Well, this term has a range of meaning that could mean uh, to convict, sorry, to convict or convince someone of something, to bring to light or expose something, or to correct or punish someone. Now we can leave the third one aside—the idea of punishing—because the context clearly is not talking about punishing. We really are between the ideas of convincing someone or exposing something in the sense of proving it up. Right, like that's really the the sense of of prosecuting. Um, and, and this term really was used in that context as well in that forensic context to mean uh, prosecution. Okay, um, some throughout the ages have have argued that what the Holy Spirit is doing here is convincing some people of the the truth of Christianity so that they will convert. Um, But I, I really don't think that that is correct. And it's not just me. I mean, there's scholarly support for what I'm saying, that really what the Holy Spirit is doing here is proving that the world is wrong. Now, how the world will react or not, that's beyond the scope of this passage, essentially. Um, to, to read here a little quote that I have in the blog, it says, that the verb, again, a length say, did not necessarily imply the conversion or reform of the guilty party. This means it is far more likely that conviction in something of a legal sense is intended here as in a trial. Okay. So, with that out of the way, like I said, I think that to say the Holy Spirit here is taking the role of a prosecutor is quite correct. Um. Besides, we have a lot of biblical support for this idea. Um, In the Old Testament, God often takes uh, the role of a prosecutor. Um, For example, out of Proverbs 22, it says, Do not exploit a poor person because he is poor, and do not crush the needy in court, for the Lord will plead their case. Right? That's the idea. The Lord is pleading the case of the downtrodden. Um. Then um, sometimes the prophets would also have this role, right? The prophets would would bring accusations. That the, probably the greatest example of this would be Hosea. This is uh, Hosea four one. Listen to the Lord's message, you Israelites. For the Lord has a covenant lawsuit against the people of Israel. Right there, a covenant lawsuit. Um, okay. So with that established, what are the charges? What is the Holy Spirit convicting the world of? Because I really think this is the more interesting discussion, even if I spent an <laughs> untold amount of time on the on the linguistic issue. Um, there are three claims and they're very distinct. I mean, and they're actually spelled out twice, right? If you if you go back and read chapter 16, it has the three charges uh on there in an organized fashion twice. Um, and as I've told you guys in the past, that's how. Uh, Jewish people would emphasize an idea, they wouldn't like put an exclamation mark, they would say it twice. Um, Okay, those three charges are one, concerning sin, because they do not believe in Jesus. Two, concerning righteousness, because Jesus is going to the Father and will no longer be visible. And three, concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world has been condemned. Okay, so let's take each in turn, because I think that these are hard to understand Uh, At least that's my personal opinion when I, you know, if I'm just reading this text and I read those three things, I'm like, I don't, I'm not quite sure. So maybe let's try to shed some more light on it. Um, The first one concerning sin, we could rephrase this in one of two ways. We could say the world is condemned of the sin of unbelief in God's only son, or we could say the world remains in its sin due to its unbelief in God's only son. I prefer the latter phrasing. I think it is more consistent with the rest of uh, the gospel of John, particularly John 3, 18, which says the following. The one who believes in him is not condemned. The one who does not believe has been condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the one and only son of God. So, um, you know, the world has decided to not believe in Jesus. They have remained in their sin. So they will be convicted of that. Um, now, there is a sense, and I'm, I'm certainly not denying this, that after seeing Jesus uh, and not believing in him, that adds to the sin, right? And this would like come out of John 9, uh, 41, says Jesus replied, if you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But now, because you claim that you can see, your guilt remains. Okay, the second charge concerning righteousness. This one is a little bit trickier and there's a little bit more of a debate. Um, I'll give you both sides, but I, I, in my opinion, I think one side is clearly the correct one. Um, first of all, the word righteousness only appears in the Gospel of John twice, right here. And in a sense, it's really, it only appears once because one is just a repetition of the others, verses 8 and verses 10, where it says the advocate will convict the world of righteousness or concerning righteousness, forgive me. And then it just says it again. Okay. When we see the word righteousness, if you are a Bible scholar, right, if you know your Bible, you are immediately going to think of Paul's letters. Because Paul's letters use this word a lot. They discuss it to a great extent. And what does Paul mean by the word righteousness? It means normally Paul is is describing a situation where our righteousness does not depend on our own good works. It depends on the righteousness and atoning work of Jesus. Right. But it, it is a little bit dangerous when we just take uh, the meaning of one author's lexicon and we just impose it on another author, because two authors might use words slightly differently, but still within their semantic range. Right. Um, well, does this, the this context here in John support that meaning that Paul is normally using? And I don't think that's correct. And it's not just me, like I said, it's, it's other scholars, but this would be the view that I think is correct. We have to understand that we are in the context of a cosmic trial where the world is saying we are righteous and you followers of Jesus are wicked, you're unrighteous. And the followers of Jesus are going, you don't understand. We are righteous because we're following Jesus who is God. We're righteous in that sense, right? Um, and it is you, the world, you are being unrighteous. Um, And so when it says here that the Holy Spirit will convict the world concerning righteousness, I think what the Holy Spirit is doing here is showing who's right and who's wrong and saying, world, you were incorrect. It is the believers in Jesus who are correct. And finally, the last charge is concerning judgment. Um, And um, this one says um, that the... The Holy Spirit will convict the world of judgment, quote, because the ruler of this world has been condemned. And I think this one is is the clearest of the three. Uh, remember that uh, Jesus, uh, you know, dying on the cross and being resurrected will will um, condemn the ruler of this world, Satan, the devil, you know, whatever word you you want to use. And here, really, what we have is an, is is this idea of two kingdoms or two sides uh it, by their you know the world they are they are sons of the devil so by condemning the devil by condemning the leader by extension the whole world all of the children of the devil have been condemned as well um so those are the three accusations that the holy spirit is bringing in condemning the world of um or prosecuting the world of. Okay. now we again run into this very tricky language about the Holy Spirit guiding uh, guiding the apostles, I will say. I might want to correct that phrasing here in a minute, but guiding the apostles into all truth. Uh, this is something that I discussed in a prior session, but the context here is a little bit different, uh, which I think warrants uh, you know, a new discussion. We need to revisit the issue. But before I get into that, I want to highlight the point that I think we should all be able to take away that is really not up for debate because it's very clear. Notice that the Spirit is fulfilling a Christological role, meaning the Spirit is acting as an, as an extension of Christ. You know, all things belong to Christ because the Father gave them to him, and then the Father gives those things to the Spirit, and it's the Spirit who brings them to the apostles, to the believers. Now, what when I say things no, in this context, those things are the truth, right? And, and perhaps more, I'm not saying it, it has to be limited to that, uh, but certainly what is being highlighted at any rate is the truth. Well, why do I say that the context here is a little bit different? Because if you remember um, two sessions ago or, or whatever this was, perhaps only one session ago, I really can't remember, um, the... I asked certain questions and said, well, when we say that the, the Holy Spirit will, in that case, it was teach them all truth. Could this truth extend beyond what's in the Bible? Uh, could it go against what's in the Bible? Those are the two questions that I focused on. And now I introduce a third question, which is, is this comment aimed only at the apostles or is it aimed at all believers, right? Is this a promise just for them, just for the 12 or, you know, or whatever, other apostles, uh, or let me rephrase that, other disciples at that time, or does it extend uh, to us? Well, let me start with the easiest of the questions. The one that I think everyone agrees on is um, could the Holy Spirit then teach a truth to us that goes against the Bible? And the answer is. This passage makes it very clear. It's obviously not because the spirit is acting on behalf of Jesus. So it would make no sense for the Holy spirit to act against Jesus. Right. Okay. So that one's, that one is very easy. Now, the tricky one in the Holy spirit teaches things that go beyond what the Bible says in, in some sense, the answer in this passage is clearly yes, in some sense. And I know that if you're listening to this, you're probably getting nervous. Just give me a minute. Give me a minute before you grab a stone. Um, <laughs> why do I say, at least in some senses, clearly yes? Because Jesus tells them he has, quote, many more things to say, right? And But they cannot bear any more stuff right now. They can't bear any more truth right now. So who's going to bring them these, quote, many more things to say? The Holy Spirit. So expressly, if you just read the text, the Holy Spirit will bring additional information. Now, um, what kind of information would that be? Um, This is going to connect closely to the question of to whom was this promise intended, just the apostles or believers at large. Now, there is technically no necessary connection between these two questions, you know, to whom the the promise was given. And... uh, what is this additional information? But traditionally, these two answers are kind of tied together. Okay. Let me give you some different views. And you guys can can kind of make up your own minds. I'm trying to, as always, trying to be as ecumenical as I can be. Um, but this is a verse, uh, John 16, 13, is a verse that is often used by Catholics to support their idea of the magisterium okay what catholics believe is that and i'm actually going to read this verbatim it's very short the teaching authority of the pope and the bishops is called the magisterium from the latin for teacher the magisterium guided and protected from error by the holy spirit gives us certainty in matters of doctrine magisterium is infallible when it teaches officially because jesus promised to send the holy spirit to guide the apostles and their successors into all truth the most important phrase in everything that I read right there is, and their successors, right? So the Catholic view is that the apostles receive this special knowledge, and then this, this promise, this blessing, or, you know, whatever you want to call it, it is passed on to their successors, meaning their pope and the bishops. Um. Now... um. So that, that would be their take on that. And what kind of new knowledge do the Catholics believe that the Pope and bishops could bring? Um te- technically speaking, uh, they are quite conservative. Uh, Catholics would say that really uh all that the Spirit will bring is growth in depth of clarity, you know, in understanding the truths that are in the Bible. Uh but, and I don't say this to offend anybody. Um in practice, this this knowledge extends signif- significantly further than simply growth in depth of clarity. The Catholic Church has a number of dogmas that are not really found in the Bible, but that they would support with, with this idea, right? Hey, the Pope and the bishops have been given this special knowledge, and it's infallible, and so we can develop doctrine. Okay, And again, I don't say that to criticize. That is just a description of what they believe. Leave it or take it um what is another way that we can look at this well another possibility is that the apostle that this promise really does only apply to the apostles but not their successors notice like i'm taking that phrase out now just to the apostles and uh when did this really take effect well when the apostles were writing scripture right if you think about it uh as christians we all think that the new testament is divinely inspired. It is the word of God. It was written by the apostles of Jesus. So um, that's what this is talking about. The Holy Spirit came to the apostles, gave, gave them this special revelation, special knowledge that they wrote down it is what we call the New Testament. But your average believer doesn't have this level of knowledge. And the last few that I'll present, th- these are by no means the only views around, but I think they give you a, a good sense of the landscape. um it's that this verse really does apply to everyone, not just the apostles uh to it applies to every believer. and it, if we were to reword it, it means the Holy Spirit will give us all wisdom, okay um and so you know when we pray to God, we can be confident that uh He will grant us a wisdom that goes beyond just our natural senses. Okay. The, well. I think you guys can probably guess this simply from my um from my take on on the similar language that was in the last chapter, which I lean towards that last view. Um, but notice that at least the last two views are not mutually exclusive, uh, right? Like you can believe that the apostles received special revelation to write the New Testament, but also that this verse really is talking to all believers. Okay. Um, and Finally, I know that I have about here five minutes, I, I want to discuss what Jesus is talking about when he says, look, I'm going to be gone for a little while, and then I will be back in a little while, and then when the apostles are all confused, and they're like, we don't know what you mean, um, Jesus makes it uh, rather explicit what they're going to go through emotionally, right? Jesus says, you will weep and wail, but the world will rejoice, and then your sadness will turn into joy, right? That's kind of the sequence of events that we get. Um, and this is exactly what happens during the crucifixion, right? Of course, for us modern readers, we know the ending of the story. We know exactly what's going to happen. Jesus is talking about the fact that in a little while, um, so just you know, in a few hours, he, uh, he will be taken, beaten, crucified, and um, he will die, and then uh, a few days after that, he uh, will, will resurrect, and then there will be joy, right? That's, But again, that's clear to us, it's not clear to the characters in the story in chapter 16. Um, I, I'm i trying to decide if I'm gonna do, okay. I'm gonna skip over some things I was gonna say, uh, kind of jump to this idea of childbirth. Jesus says, this is going to be like childbirth where there is pain, but then there's so much joy, right? That the mother doesn't even remember what she went through because she's so happy about the outcome. And that, I mean, that of course is a perfect analogy to what the crucifixion will be because it, this is the final final defeat of the ruler of this world, the final defeat of death. Uh, the spirit comes to the believers. It is just, right, the, the greatest event in all of the Bible. Um, But there are some other undertones that we might miss because childbirth was an image that was often used in the Old Testament. Well, actually, it was used in the culture at large to describe uh, events that were very painful, but that could have a good outcome. The Old Testament uses this language as well. Um, But the undertone that I'm trying to get to is that the Bible, particularly the New Testament, but we see it some in the Old Testament, uses childbirth also to to show a progression into the next stage, so to speak, right? Particularly when referring to the eschaton, to the end times, Uh, Paul uses this a bunch, that we are going through childbirth, right? As as we are progressing to the eschaton. Um, So when Jesus says, hey, what's about to happen? this terrible thing that's about to happen is like childbirth. Uh, not only does it highlight how painful it will be, not only does it highlight how good the outcome will be, but it also highlights how this is progressing the story, right? This is a significant event that will change everything. Um, and so hopefully that kind of deepens uh, our understanding of, of what's happening. here. The last few verses are, um, I, well, actually I'm going to stop there and maybe if I have more time, I'll address the last few verses in the chapter, but uh, Matt, we can open it up for questions or comments.
0: Sure. Thanks, Robert. As usual, guys, if you'd like to participate, ask a question, offer some commentary, just write the word question in the chat. I'll be happy to bring you in. Just the word question is sufficient. Uh, You can chime in at any point. Um, Let's see. As far as my own thoughts, um, you, you mentioned just a little bit ago, you said something to the effect of the Holy spirit will give wisdom beyond the natural senses. And I know that that's your phrasing, not necessarily scriptural phrasing, but that is uh that's an intriguing thing to say. So I was just wondering if you, if you could expand on that a
3: little bit.
1: Um, sure. Uh, I think, um, and this would be a commonly held belief, even among say Catholics or Eastern Orthodox, whatever, Uh, even if they don't pull it out of John 16, 13, they may pull this from other places. The idea that God really does give us wisdom. Like um, if I, you know, it will go beyond the wisdom that I would have had on my own if I had not relied on God. Um, And that may not, like like I've discussed in the past, that may not be some like voice that I hear. It just, it could be a thought that comes to my head that I realize, oh yeah, that is, that is the right path. That is the right thing that I ought to do in this situation. Um, and, and I do think that that is a promise that is made in the Bible, that we will receive more wisdom than we would have had if we did not rely, if we did not ask God for that. Hmm. Okay. Uh,
0: you also, well, several times throughout your lecture, you you mentioned that you take a particular position on several interpretations of things, um, one of which I noted was our understanding of righteousness and what that means uh, with reference to a, a another uh, portion, which I forget was the exact reference. But as always, I'll invite you to discuss competing interpretations and give them the best shake that you can or expand upon why
1: you think maybe they're wrong. Sure, sure. This really is not so much a debate of um, what I think righteousness means. It's what it means in this particular passage, because Paul, in his epistles, he very clearly uses the word righteousness to mean the righteousness imputed to us, right? So what what Paul says, and John would not disagree with this. I'm not trying to pit one against the other, but Paul is normally saying, look, Jesus is perfect, right? Jesus is good. And um, not only is he perfect, but but he acted perfectly. So you have the person and the work of Christ being perfect. And that goodness, that perfection is imputed to us. So we can be called righteous, but not for something we did, but because there's been like this legal um, transferring of righteousness, right? The t- righteousness of Christ has been transferred to us kind of by judicial edict, so to speak. Um, And that's absolutely the case. I don't disagree with one bit of that. But the question that I was trying to get at is, in John chapter 16, is John using that word the same way that Paul does? And I honestly don't think there's any good reason to think that there there is. It's just kind of an assumption because we always hear that word in the Pauline context that people just kind of assume. It's like, oh, of course, John means the same thing. But uh, I think when you look at the context, John here is saying no we've got this debate who's righteous the ones following christ or the ones uh rejecting christ and the holy spirit is going to make it clear no it's the ones following christ they're the ones who are right if mm. okay uh we don't have any
0: requests for oh wait now we do have one brian would like to chime in brian go ahead
4: at least i think he would. Oh there he is. Sorry my uh, I was my computer was acting up and I, I was struggling to unmute it. Um what was i going to say? Oh, um i i think just a, a word of adding to what robert said. Uh, if we take this in the context of john's gospel as a whole that the holy spirit is primarily the his, his function is to give us a new nature. Um, this builds on what uh, Jesus told uh, Nicodemus in chapter three about being born again. Um, that his remarks about uh, springs of living water will will well up in those who believe in him. And the, the whole the, the whole the overall picture is of the the individual believer and the church becoming the new temple. Uh, because of Jesus' death and resurrection. Modern people tend to get caught up in this idea of the Holy Spirit as the agent of, of divine revelation to the individual believer. And while I don't rule that out, while I'm talking, I, I, I feel like I need to clarify some remarks I made a couple of weeks ago, and it, that, sure. which ties into this pretty well. I said that if you think that God is talking to you, he's not. Um, What I meant by that was not that God never talks to us today. It's that if you, if he has something to reveal to you, you won't have to wonder, like you won't, it it won't depend on your ability to discern it. He'll make himself clear, like you won't have to suss it out. So when I, so when I said, if you think God is talking to you, he's not, I mean, what I mean to say is that when he's talking to you, you'll know it but uh if you just think he is it's probably your own imagination but tying into this discussion the idea of the spirit as the agent of individual revelation while i don't rule out that that's possible i think people abuse the idea that's where you get cults and that's where you get a a billion different little denominations all claiming that uh it, it, in various ways that the spirit is speaking through them. And, and it, it, without, without that caution, it kind of throws the door wide open to abuse this doctrine. And if we, if we look to the, the book of Acts, uh, we, we can see exactly what Jesus is talking about. Um, the apostles themselves didn't immediately come into a, a A comprehensive understanding of everything that the gospel meant of everything that is, death resurrection and ascension and the spirit man like you in acts uh 10 and 11 peter has a vision about uh where god tells him to uh he shows him a bunch of unclean animals and he hears god's voice telling him get up peter kill and eat meaning the the kosher dietary laws are no longer in effect for for believers because they had they've served their purpose and peter was resistant to this at first like it's Um, and this was also, this was an ongoing controversy within the church about whether Gentiles had to convert to Judaism and, uh, live by Jewish law in order to follow Jesus. Um, and if you, if you look at how they work that out, I think that's a pretty good model for this idea of the, the spirit as the agent of revelation. Like it, it, he doesn't just no individual person can just claim authority that the spirit is speaking through me right now. So you, you know, you have to listen to me as if I'm God and that, that happens a lot. People, people do that. And uh, anyway, that's just some random thoughts that uh, I thought would be worth uh, noting here. Um, Do you, what do you think, Robert? Yeah, go for it, Robert.
1: Sorry. I had muted myself. My dogs came in here and making noise. Uh, no, I largely agree. Um, I, I should have specified when I was going through the different views of the, the spirit guiding us into all truth. You know, I said, I, I take that third view that that means that the spirit does give us all wisdom, but what, I, let me, I guess, clarify what I say by wisdom. So it doesn't turn into something else. Um, effectively what I mean is applications of the teachings that are in the Bible. Uh, the way that a a scholar phrases this, uh, let me read it word for word because I thought it was good. Um, that the spirit will continue to speak new strategies to new situations. Okay. But not new doctrine. I don't mean new doctrine. Like if I come to you and I'm like, Hey, the spirit told me that, I don't know, some new doctrine, right. Uh, Uh, none of us can look at the sky because that is sinful. Um, Okay. Clearly wrong. Right. But I mean, that wisdom that comes when you are able to apply the biblical teachings to all these new situations that of course are not addressed specifically in the Bible. Um, That's, that's kind of what I was referring to. So I I think I'm mostly in line with Brian. I don't know. Yeah. I would say I mostly agree if I understood him correctly. Sure.
0: Uh, Brian says he has one quick point to add. Uh, Brian, if you're able to do that briefly, go ahead and do that. And uh, yeah, otherwise, if you have more you want to say, I could come back to you after yeah, Donald. But yeah, sure.
4: Um, well, uh, along the lines of what Robert just said, if we look at the how this worked in the early church, nothing that was revealed to the apostles in the in the Book of Acts what did had, was without precedent in the Old Testament. Like they can look at the scriptures and see, oh yeah, well that's here. Here's where here's where the prophet said that the law of Moses would be obsolete um, under the new covenant. Here's where here's where we here, here where the seeds were sown that showed that the temple would be obsolete. Uh, that kind of thing. So it it's while there will be. That doesn't tell new revelations. They're not, they're not whole cloth new revelations. There's yeah. stuff, there's still sort of guide rails that are already set up in, in the scriptures. That's all. That's all. All right. Thank you, Brian.
0: Uh, Donald would like to chime in. Go ahead, Donald.
3: Yeah. Hey, Matt. Hey, Robert. Uh, Robert, could you revisit what you said about um, righteousness per Paul and righteousness per this passage in john's gospel um i just need that clarification it sounded like a distinction without a difference but you called out a difference and i didn't follow
1: uh sure um so when generally when paul speaks of righteousness uh he is saying that we are righteous because of jesus in 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 an imputed sense right in the sense that Mm -hmm. because the goodness the righteousness, I, I'll use that word, because the righteousness of Jesus has been imputed to us, um, then we can be called righteous. And and again, I'm not disagreeing with that in any way, shape, or form. The only clarification I'm making is whether that is what John is speaking of in this case. And I don't think that that quite uh, gets the meaning of John here. What John is saying is there is this like, cosmic trial going on where both the followers of Jesus are claiming to be right and the world is claiming to be right, and the spirit here is uh, proving uh, that no, it is the followers of Jesus who are right. So the followers here are being called righteous in the sense that they are following the one who is righteous. Um, and so it perhaps is it's a very minute distinction. Uh, I don't know. Maybe I was making too much head or nothing. You tell me, Donald.
3: <laughs> no, well. I mean, I, you clarified your point. Thank you. Um, yeah. And I, I guess in, in a larger view, I don't, I don't ascribe to myself any degree of scholarship, but in a larger view, it does sound like a distinction without a difference because righteousness is righteousness <laughs> in my simple, in my simple view, but I, I appreciate it anyway.
1: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And again, I, I, as I study this stuff, you know, sometimes I think, "Oh, this is a really big deal. I need to point it out." And I say it, and then people are going, "Why are you doing this, Robert?" So <laughs> sometimes well, I, I cer- just miss it.
3: I certainly get the context that you're, you know, in the terms of this passage. Yeah, I, I, and I appreciate the, uh, the context of a of a of a trial that you're putting into. So, yeah, I get that. Thank you.
0: Thanks, Donald. Okay, uh, we are caught up on our request to speak. But of course, uh, we do have about 10 minutes or so. So if anybody else would like to add some thoughts or questions, go ahead and type question in the chat. I'll be happy to get to you. Robert, you did mention that you ran out of time and skipped over maybe a couple things. Would you like to revisit those?
1: Uh, sure. So what what I was going to say, um, and this is not going to be any big theological point or whatever, is I wanted to bring to light uh, the the things that Jesus Warned, not warned, uh, predicted, the the things that Jesus predicted when he said, you will weep and wail, then two, but the world will rejoice, and then three, but your sadness will turn into joy, okay? And I pulled examples, not from John, but from Luke mostly, because I don't want to spoil the ending of John. Now, I know that everyone knows how the story ends, (laughs) I'm not dumb, Uh, but uh, still, right, I want this to get to the later chapters and. Kind of be shocked or whatever. Okay. So an example of the disciples will weep and wail. I pulled this out of Mark. Uh, Fair disclosure, this is out of the longer ending of Mark. Um, This early on the first day of the week after he arose, meaning Jesus, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, from whom he had driven out seven demons. She went out and told those who were with him while they were mourning and weeping. Right? So this paints the image that, or the picture that after Jesus was killed, you know, after he was crucified, uh, the apostles have been in this state of mourning and weeping. But the world will rejoice. Now, this sounds positive, but it's the opposite, right? What does it mean the world will rejoice? It means those who are against Jesus will rejoice that Jesus got killed. And I give two examples out of Luke. Um, So I'll, I'll just read them. But they all shouted out together, take this man away, release Barabbas for us. This was a man who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection started in the city and for murder. Pilate addressed them once again because he wanted to release Jesus, but they kept on shouting, crucify, crucify him. A third time he said to them, why? What wrong has he done? I have found him guilty of no crime deserving death. I will therefore flog him and release him. But they were insistent, demanding with loud shouts that he be crucified. Shouts prevailed. Right? That's what this means. The world is saying, kill him, kill him, kill him. And they got their way. Second example, I'll read. The people also stood there watching, but the leaders ridiculed him, him being Jesus, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself. If he's the Christ of God, he's chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. It was also an inscription over him: This is the king of the Jews. Right. And that's that's nothing. But sarcasm, this is the king of the Jews. Um, so Jesus is being killed and he's being mocked. The world is rejoicing in this terrible event. But, point three, but your sadness will turn into joy. And I'll, I'll read this last quote. Well, while they were saying these things, and forgive me that I don't have the context for this verse, but just stick with me. While they were saying these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. But they were startled and terrified, thinking they saw a ghost, right? This is Jesus after being raised from the dead, visiting the disciples. Then he said to them, why are you frightened? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? Look at my hands and my feet. It's me. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones like you see I have. When he has said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still could not believe it because of their joy, and were amazed. He said to them, do you have anything here to eat? So Jesus appears to them, they will rejoice. This is exactly what Jesus is predicting in chapter 16. And we will see all of this in later in the gospel of John. But here's a big sneak preview of what will happen. Um, I just find that to be very powerful. Um, The three points, essentially, not only will the disciples weep and wail, but the world will rejoice at the death of Jesus. It's, It's a very dismal and wicked picture that is being painted. Um, so that's, that's what I was going to say on that front.
0: I see some appreciation for the spoiler alert in the chat. So thank you for <laughs> thinking of those who are behind on the series. I know it's a little old, but yeah. they appreciate yeah, I, that. I'm sure.
1: <laughs> well, I, I don't know. Maybe that was really dumb of me, but I thought, I don't want to go ahead and read the last few verses of John now, because we'll be like, oh, I know exactly how this book ends. Yeah. <laughs> So let's leave it for later. This, um, maybe,
0: maybe this doesn't really matter all that much, but you talk about this being sort of a, like a sarcastic or an ironic rejoicing as in the celebration of Jesus's death, not because of the sacrifice, but because of, we hate that guy basically. Yep, We good. I'm glad. Um, but then the sadness will turn to joy, but that joy after that, that is, that is not the same sarcastic, ironic joy. That is a, uh, a sincere joy for, for the resurrection, for the sacrifice, for all of that. Um, I don't know if there's any meaning to be drawn from that. I just find it interesting that those two themes are presented back to back in this way. Uh, am, does that matter at all, or am I just observing something that's not of value?
1: No, I think it. Ma- I think that is the very point of of. Um all the irony that John has been building, right? Because I've come back to this idea of irony throughout the gospel of John. And you, this is this will be the biggest irony of the whole book. This is where it culminates. This idea that the world is really happy because they hate that guy. And I'm glad that he got tortured and I'm glad he got killed. While the disciples are mourning going, oh no, we lost. Because that's really what they think at the time. Shoot, mm. Jesus really wasn't the guy. And then Jesus comes back and there's this final reversal. Yeah. Um, so yeah, no, you like, you have it spot on.
0: Interesting. Well, th- thank you for illustrating that. Uh, appreciate it. And thank you for your, your lesson overall. We are just before the, the top of the hour. So last call, if anyone wants to chime in, get uh, a request in now, just type question in the chat, but I expect everyone has probably had their fill. So uh, did you have any closing thoughts before we wrap up?
3: Oh,
1: that was it. Thank you very much.
0: All right. Well, thanks, everybody. Uh, We will, of course, uh, be back next week, December 17th. That will be the last study of the year before we take a two-week break until January 7th. But we hope to see you back here next week. Thanks for your participation tonight. And uh, we'll see you next Saturday, December 17th. Have a great week until then.